certainly have fears that there is a serial killer at loose in Perth. Sarah Spears, Jane Rimmer, Kira Glennon. And every time you saw a young girl walking by, you think, oh God, is she going to be the next victim? Now, one man stands accused. If police are right and Edwards is the Claremont serial killer, he's been hiding in plain sight for 20 years. A scientist from New Zealand revealed in court today four samples sent to them for testing were contaminated with a mystery DNA. Hello, this is Claremont in Conversation, Day 40. Natalie Bongiolo joined by Tim Clark and forensic expert Brendan Chapman. Tim, can we start with what these particular samples were? Uh, yeah, Nat, I'll try, I'll, I'll try and go through it as, as plainly as I can. So back in 2004, um, there, were, there were a whole bunch of samples that were packaged up and, and sent off to New Zealand to have some more testing done. These were um, extracts, so already extracted DNA taken from the, the fingernails of Kira Glennon in particular, um, and they were already they were t- tiny bit of liquids already in tubes, um, and they were packaged up and sent over. But also sent over were the finger or some of the fingernails themselves, um, because uh, detectives here and pathway scientists here thought that um, the scientists in New Zealand at the lab ESR might be able to do their own tests and get some, um, yeah, maybe make a breakthrough. And so that's what happened. They went over, they were packaged, and not only the extracts were run um, that had been made from um, Pathwest, but there were also some swabs um, taken from what's been referred to this week as the parent exhibit, so the actual fingernails themselves, um, and then they were run in a, in a similar way. Um, but um, what we learned today was, allied to that, there were also what, what they call blanks sent over um, from Pathwest um, that I'm sure Brendan will be able to tell us more about. And, and these are blank samples that has everything in them but the sample, and that's to check whether there was any contamination in there. So when they run those tests, there shouldn't be any human DNA in there at all. But what we learned today, that of the 35 blank samples that were sent over um, from Perth to New Zealand, 21 of those were tested, and four of them actually came back with uh, human DNA in them, which it wasn't supposed to be there. And so that was the main revelation that was teased out by defence lawyer Paul Jovic today. Um, and that, again, um, was him trying to um, place the processes of Pathwest, um, if I can use the pun, um, under the microscope. Brendan, how often um, would blank samples be used as well? Yeah, every time we do um, any process in a, in a DNA lab, whether that's a forensic lab or any other lab for that matter, we always, part of good quality assurance is ensuring that we include what we call controls with, with the analysis. And they're these, these measures that we use to check that the results that we get from the actual samples are, are verifiable. So... In, in a situation where, just for argument's sake, say I might extract DNA from 10 different samples, I would have an 11th sample that would be called a negative control or a blank. Um, there's various names you can call it, but um, the, the, the definition of that is that it's, it's a control that should contain no DNA. 
Um, and so the idea is that it you're, you're putting it through the same process as all of the other samples. So the same reagents get added to that tube, uh, the same heating, the same instruments that they go in. It's all the same. So if there is um, introduction of some DNA into that tube, it can invalidate the results of the other tubes that were part of that um, that concurrent run, I suppose. So that's the point of, of, a, of a negative control. So, Tim, you've said to us that four out of these 21 samples are contaminated. Does that, is that a higher number or a higher number than usual? Well, that's um, pretty much the question that uh, Mr Jovic um, put to um, Dr Sally-Ann Harbison, who's given evidence from ESR today. He said, what does this say about the quality of the work done at Path West? Um, now, uh, the prosecutor quickly stood up and said, well, that's a bit of a broad question. Uh, and, and can this doctor really um, testify to that? And so Mr. Govis put it another way and said, well, Dr. Harbison, what would you expect your percentage to be in your lab um, of, of comebacks of, um, you know, uh, contamination in blank samples? And she said uh, between 1% and 2%. And that is now. And then she said, and I would have expected that percentage then as well. So those are the numbers that were uh, that were out there um, and obviously it's up to Justice Hall to make of that what he will. But uh, Mr Hollingsworth then in his re-examination uh, did some uh, some fast talking and fast asking of questions to try and uh, um, make up back some ground I suppose in that he asked about the actual samples that were impacted by these um, these um, blank positives, if I can put it that way. And of particular interest was AJM42, which um, our sort of regular listeners will know is one of the critical exhibits in that. That is one of the fingernails that was eventually tested in the UK in a combined sample and came back with Mr. Edwards' DNA. And that AJM42 sample, um, the blank that went with that was not one of the contaminated samples. So that meant that any results um, relating to that sample that ESR found and Pathwest found um, were not contaminated. So um, uh, as much as it was, uh, it was, it, it did sound like quite a dramatic development. In fact, when when you, when you break it down to uh, the, the actual critical exhibit that we're we're, we're interested in, um, the contamination didn't uh, actually individually impact that sample. So I guess in people's minds, they would be thinking, well, that doesn't then jeopardise the prosecution's case at all. Well, um, not, in an, not, a, not in a hammer blow way, you would say, but the, the fact that Mr Jovic can now point to these contaminated samples having been worked on at Path West and then having been tested in New Zealand and found to be contaminated... Um, in, it, in the general picture of, of what he's trying to build it, is that, you know, maybe processes and, uh, and, um, and pathways that should have been followed at Pathwest weren't being, um, then, you know, he, you've got to say he, he did score a couple of points today. Yeah, you also have to consider that um, a contamination isn't a contamination is a contamination. There's, there's a whole range of different circumstances that can lead to what we're broadly putting under the description of contamination. Um, 
it really just flags an opportunity for investigation into what has happened here um, because a contamination event whereby, say, the, the operator or, or the laboratory person doing that um, test, their DNA appear, appearing in a sample can be quite explainable. It can be, um, for want of a better word, more acceptable than a cross-contamination where a sample adjacent to another sample is mixed. So the word contamination is this umbrella term, but it doesn't. it's not always this horrible event that has happened that we can't explain and, and, um, and means it's the shoddy lab practices. It's, yeah. it's a matter of being able, using it as a flag to then discuss or, or investigate how it's come to be. And Tim, was the witness able to say um, that they investigated and found out who the DNA belonged to or where the contamination happened, whether that was at Path West or was that in New Zealand? Well, um, Dr Harbison was asked that, um, whether uh, actually asked, asked by Justice Hall whether, whether um, if that had happened in her lab, um, whether there would be methods of um, investigation. And she said, um, yes, there would be, um, because uh, obviously staff members at these labs have their own DNA profiles on file, I, I, I guess just for, for, for an eventuality like this. But because... Um, and she was also asked, well, what are the chances that it happened at your lab? And she said, well, I can't rule it out definitively that it didn't happen in New Zealand. But she did say the process that we undertook, there was a much smaller window and we did our own blanks while we were doing that and they came back clear. So she was, Dr. Harbison was clearly saying, look, I, I can't rule it out, but my feeling is it didn't happen with us. So make of that what you will. But in terms of who that, who that female DNA be, belonged to, and it was female DNA we found out, uh, we didn't find out who it belonged to because she didn't have anything to test it with, obviously, um, and um, we haven't got to the portion of the evidence, if we get there at all, that someone from Pathwest is asked about that. Um, there is another senior Pathwest scientist, uh, Alex Bagdonovicius, on the stand now. Um, it, it, we're going through his evidence in chief, or started that this afternoon. So whether we get there um, with him or another Pathwest um, staff member, um, we're yet to. Uh, we'll have to wait and see. And you've just mentioned Alexander. He's a very long-serving uh, forensic pathologist, and he was asked about the lab setups back then. Yes, yes, amongst uh, many other things. Uh, uh, all his um, sort of early evidence was, you know, about um, his, his history at Path West, which I think stretches back into the mid-70s, uh, Brendan, which is um, staggering to, to wonder the changes that he's seen in his chosen field over that, that uh, distance in time. Um, yeah, and he was asked about the layout of the lab, um, how it was set up, um, the, the floors they were on, um, and then uh, towards the end of the day, we were just getting to the time when um, we briefly discussed previously that Pathwest actually moved um, from the QE2 Medical Centre, which is a, a hospital site, um, campus basically in Perth, to another site in Bentley, um, which was a massive um, undertaking in itself. Obviously, all those precious exhibits have to be moved um, carefully and, and, and catalogued. Uh, along the way, so we might well get um, we might well get to that point um, early tomorrow. And 
a particular question that um, caught my interest was about, um, he was asked about the phones and this question that we heard earlier in the week about the phone and where the phone is and how someone would get into the lab. Mm. Yeah, well, yeah, he did. He, he was talking about how the, um, the, the lab was, even back in 95, 96, was secure. Um, it needed a pin code to get into a, a, a certain place. You couldn't just walk in and out. Um, and uh, there were phones um, available um, and they were used. Um, uh, but uh, to get into that portion um, of, the, uh, of, of the lab, um, you did need um, to be uh, a person that um, needed to be there. You couldn't just, um, you couldn't just walk in and, and pick up the phone. So can you tell us about some of the other items that um, Alexander tested? Yes. Um, so uh, once again, um, because of these, the long-serving um, Pathwest um, scientists uh, deal with all these big cases as they come through. Um, uh, uh, Mr. Bagdonovicius was, was involved in the receival and reception of some of the exhibits from the Karakata Rape in 95. He was also involved in some exhibits um, for Kira and some for Jane as well. But of, uh, the sort of most he was asked about today was were the the, um, the clothing in particular of that um, Karakata Rape victim that was, that, were t- that was taken into evidence in 95. Um, he was the one that did um, uh, ran tests um, on that clothing, actually cut little bits of um, some of the hospital um, gear that um, this, the, the victim wore after, excuse me, after she was taken um, to hospital to be cared for, um, and, uh, and and was also responsible for um, looking at the, the jacket, um, her denim jacket, her shoes, and probably most importantly, um, her shorts, um, which we know will come to prominence later when we get to the uh, to the fibre evidence. Were those items shown or photographs of those items shown in court today as some of the items were shown yesterday? Yeah, 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 they were. Um, they were pretty, uh, given that it was 95, they were pretty grainy photos, but they were, um, they, they were, they were flashed up there um, um, quite close up, um, particularly the shorts, um, the label on the shorts, uh, because Mr. Bagdonovich has walked us through um, how he'd done that um, physical sighting and then testing of it. Um, he had his own little um, uh, symbol that he used to use um, on, on some of his documentation to, to remind himself that he had actually um, physically examined those shorts himself. Um, and then we got on to, um, uh, later on in his evidence, very late in the day, we got into um, his... Um, Actions around uh, the, the the pristine hair um, sample that was taken from Miss Glennon at her um, her dump site, um, the RH17, which we discussed quite um, quite a lot, and and it was it was he that it was Mr. Bagdonovich that was responsible for um, examining closely examining some of those hairs that had been placed on slides. Um, and we literally, this after, late this afternoon, went through it hair by hair, the descriptions that, that he'd given to those hairs, the, 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 the width, the breadth, and the length, the, the colour, um, and, and, and how they looked um, to him. So um, that's, that's some of the, that's co- that's the level of detail that we're going into at the, at the minute now. We're, we are literally going through the evidence hair by hair. And, Brendan, why does it... 
you know, get down to such a tight individual hair. You've got a hair sample, but then you're really looking at every individual strand. Why is it so important to check every single strand like that? I suppose it's because in, in a situation where the bulk of that hair has been recovered from an individual, you're not actually looking for the, uh, the haystack, you're looking for the needle. Um, you're looking for the foreign hair, not not the one that is, um, uh, yeah, the, the haystack um, from the source, I suppose. So that's where it's important to do this um, morphological uh, examination, which is where microscopically you're looking at individual hairs to see whether they're consistent with the group or whether they look appear to be from another source. And then there's a whole range of other tests we can do further to that. Um, but at this stage, it's, it's kind of like a sorting technique, really. And when you're working with samples, do you, or are you bearing in mind that um, 20 years down the track, they may be tested again and again and again, and that they could go through several hands? Yeah, we cert- certainly are, and we certainly should be. Um, it's it's hard to crystal ball because we we like to think that we're, what we what we're doing now here and now is is going to eventuate in something that we can make use of today. Um, but the reality is, and we we now know that this with cold cases in general that um, we're returning to exhibits and and things that have been examined twenty years earlier and redoing the work of scientists 20 years ago. Um, so it's, it is it is a difficult situation. We need to be cognizant of the fact that what I'm doing here today is, a, is, is potentially going to be scrutinised in 20 years. Who, who knows? It could be 50 years' time. Um, and it's really hard for us to know what capability we're going to have in that span. We found it very interesting in an earlier podcast this week where we heard about... Um, the, some nail clippings that were transferred in Ineski to New Zealand and put in a plastic, for want of a better word, sandwich bag, popped onto a photocopier and then popped back into the tube. Um, that's obviously not something that would happen today because now you have digital photography, but did that take you by surprise? I don't know how it took me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it's... Digital, digital imaging has, has revolutionised forensics in a, in a huge way, even if you go back to um, the opportunities at a crime scene where historically using wet fo- photo film, people, forensic photographers are taking photos at, at a crime scene and we take for granted the fact that we can quickly have a look and review the image we've taken now. It wasn't that long ago that you didn't have the capability to do that. You take a photo and you hope that you've exposed it correctly. You hope that it's not going to be too dark. You hope that you've captured what you've got. So digital, digital imaging's had a huge impact on forensics. And this is actually an, an in-the-lab example of where prior to digital imaging, the most effective or, 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 or I suppose, efficient way of recording what something looks like is to is to stick it in a clip seal bag and photocopy it. I guess nowadays it's you know you would really just see that as another opportunity for some kind of accident as in contamination to happen. Look any any time you 
you come into contact with a sample or you manipulate a sample in any way is an opportunity for contamination, even in the steps we use in a laboratory um, where we're moving liquids around from tube to tube. The best technique we can use is the one that has the least number of those steps, but also still obtains the best result. Tim, um, you also heard a little bit today about the database and and mm. how it was added onto the database at this time. Yes, so this is the um, the sample that was originally unknown male four. So this this sample that was taken from the instrument swab from the Karakata rape victim, um, and they got obviously got a hit, male hit, um, but didn't know who it was at that time. So it was it was given the moniker unknown male four, and that was because at that time, and this was Mr. Bagdonovich's jobs, or one of his jobs, was to input, when all those results were, were said and done, it was to input into their own um, database, and they kept um, they kept this one in particular for unknown males, particularly males in, in sex assault cases, um, specifically for the potential for a cold case investigation to come back and, and, and check it. And so that's what he did. He, I, he, so he was the one that uploaded Mr. The, the, the unknown male for we now know was Mr. Edwards. So he was the, he was the man that um, first put Bradley Edwards' DNA onto some sort of database. But at that time, this wasn't a national database. This was just Pathwest's database. Um, it wasn't until um, many years later, um, around 2003-2004, that there was a change in the law which allowed all of Pathwest's DNA um, uh, findings and and kept um, data um, to be uploaded on a national um, DNA database, um, which is, again, something that Mr. McDonough was uh, was involved in, and that included this um, DNA, DNA sample um, which we then know was didn't pop up again until many many years later, um, when it was run um, uh, when it when a match was found um, with uh, with uh, Kira Glennon's uh, the, the findings from Kira Glennon in 2008, and then from this from this kimono in 2016. Yeah, Brendan, how comprehensive is this database nowadays? Uh, to my knowledge, last last time I checked, I think it was in excess of about one one point two million sort of hits um, or, or profiles on the, on the national database. So that's Australia wide. And how important is it that when you are testing and you're getting a result, how important is it that you get it into the database um, quite quickly? Is there an urgency sometimes with that? Um, it's 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 not a it's not a manual. Um, kind of search like it's it's not something that I kind of walk away from my instrument and here's my DNA profile and I walk over to a to a computer and upload it type it in um, it's all it's all automated now um, and while I couldn't tell you the exact lag time it would be within hours it's oh. something within hours of, of getting a result um, it's certainly not something where results just sit locally on a computer for a period of time until someone comes along and puts it on the database Right, so police and investigators um, would know, though, that it's going to be there quite quickly for them to go back and reference. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. As soon as a result is reported and pr- and formally released through the process of you know peer review and and verifying those results, um, or like each different state has their own legislation and they've got a legislated authority as to who can uh, or, or what organisation or, or government agency has the. Uh, the, the ownership of that state database and, and all of those state databases are connected uh, federally through um, the, the national database, which is um, managed by um, the uh, Crime, Crime Intelligence Commission centrally. Right. So, Brendan, we have some questions for you. This first one has come out of a question from Monday's podcast and In a nutshell, um, the listener is wanting to know how easy is secondary DNA transfer? Yeah, it's it's not really known, um, and it's it's why this is kind of a a really hotly debated phenomena in in forensic research in the last five years. Really, Um, uh, what we what we do know. Um, and to quote, to quote um, one of my colleagues from earlier this week, is DNA doesn't just fly around the place. Um, but if I deposit cellular material onto a surface, whatever that surface is, it is potentially possible for another person or object to come along and collect that from the surface and move it along. But you have to consider just like just like anything that you put down and then someone collects some of it up, there's always a, di- there's a diminishing amount with every transfer. So if I was to put down 50 grains of sand on a, on a table and you were to come along and put your hand on it, you're probably going to take away 20 grains of that sand. And so every time, and then you might put some of those on another surface and, and, it, and it's, so it's this diminishing, um, amount of transfer with every subsequent um, contact, but it's hugely misunderstood. When, when or not misunderstood, it's, it's hugely, uh, it's poorly understood, because unlike grains of sand that we can sit there and we can count, we we can't count those cells and what they're doing every time something's transferred. So, the short answer to the question, I suppose, is we don't know, um, but it is this phenomena that. Um, is currently debated and, and I'd, I'd love to get to the end of it. I'd, I'd love to see a conclusive piece of research that, that can really put this to bed because it's been debated in the courts for at least the last five to ten years. Yeah, I mean, it's and this is obviously the question in people's minds. They're really wanting to nut out this idea of contamination, which you've already explained is the, a big umbrella term for such a vast um, array of circumstances. But the questions that are coming to us are like this. So we have another one here at the moment, which is if there was contamination, wouldn't there be other DNA from others in the lab as well? So this people are trying to understand you know, how it moves across, who moves it across, and if you're standing in the room, can it fly through the room? <laughs> yeah, and I think people are, are, are trying to grasp the concept as this very discrete, explainable circumstance, like it, like picking up grains of sand, but it's, it's so much more complicated than that. It also doesn't just... C- contamination in general 
isn't just limited to what happens in a scene or, or before an offence where people might be touching things on a surface or transferring their their material their cellular material around. There's other opportunities for contamination in a DNA lab where DNA is being copied up, and then we're talking about discrete fragments of DNA that are, that are um, able to be transferred, not just these whole cells. It's I'd love to be able to say there's a, there's this really simple explanation for it, but unfortunately, the viewers are going to have to wait until next week's episode, where hopefully we can drill down some some further um, and explanations for it. Yeah, I mean the reality is this isn't black and white. Not even in the courtroom. Uh, this is a grey area which everyone is grappling with. Yeah, really. That's, that's exactly it. We heard a lot of, about um, mitochondrial DNA. How is that used in forensics? Yeah, so mitochondrial DNA is um, is an alternative uh, technique we can, or not technique, but an alternative uh, type of DNA that we can look at. Um, it's if you if you remember the the discussion last week about cells and where DNA comes from, um, and we kind of talked about how a cell looks kind of like a fried egg. And all of the DNA, well, specifically the nuclear DNA, lives within that yolk. Well, the mitochondria is, is what we call an organelle, or it's part of the cellular machinery that makes these cells work, that lives outside of that, or lives but sits outside of that yolk in, in I suppose, the egg white. Um, and it contains its own genome, its own DNA, um, that we can interrogate um, for, I suppose, complementary information to what we're looking at with our nuclear DNA analysis or our DNA profile. So the nuclear DNA comes from your mum and your dad, your biological parents. The mitochondrial DNA is inherited just from your mother. So it's carried on down what we call maternal lines. So it's passed on from mother to daughter and son, um, and we can interrogate uh, the the what we call the haplotype of the um, mitochondrial DNA, and it can inform us as to these familial lines. So um, I would have the the same mitochondrial haplotype as my mother, um, and she would have the same mitochondrial haplotype as her mother, and and so on and so forth. Um, in forensics, it can be another tool to help us inform um, as to whether uh, we have uh, a connection um, because mitochondrial DNA can be present where nuclear DNA sometimes isn't. So in cases where, for instance, we might have a hair, a hair cell is, is quite unique in that the nuclear material is only in that uh, like the, the follicle or, or the part that sits in your head. Um, and once a hair falls out, that's largely lost. However, there can be residual mitochondrial DNA within the hair shaft itself. So in situations where we can't detect nuclear DNA in, say, a hair, we might be able to then interrogate the mitochondrial DNA, which can still help identify an individual. Great. Interesting. Yes. Now, this is way off topic. Yeah, and, and not, not too deep. Was no, it? no, 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 okay. that was great. And, and it's just you're making me think about 
So these DNA kits that people are doing, this is way off topic. Um, what DNA are they using? Like 23andMe. Like yeah, like Ancestry of, DNA. Yeah, what are yeah. they using? Um, mostly nuclear. Nuclear. Yeah. And that's how they, they're getting a familial line. This is probably depends on the package you buy. Like they I probably see. will do a new, like they'll probably have a nuclear package. They'll charge an extra two hundred dollars to do the mitochondrial stuff, ah, and then so they'll tell you okay. what your mum's history is. Uh, now, Tim, there's a question for you, and this has come from a, a few people. Um, that is, there has there been any reports provided from autopsies on Kira or Jane regarding neck and defence wounds as to whether the perpetrator was left or right-handed? And this has come to us several times because people are noting which hand Bradley Edwards uses when he's taking notes. Yeah, um, it is a good question, but one that I'm, I can't really supply a, 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 a neat answer to. I'm going to borrow from Brendan's playbook there, and uh, because of the the nature of the decomposition for a start on the bodies, um, the wounds as they were viewed were not as they were inflicted. If you get my meaning, because they a, a bit like Brendan's DNA, those those conditions had degraded so much that um, even the prosecutor Carmel Barbagallo had said. The defects, as she referred to them, are, are what they are and can be seen. And this is what we're postulating because of the decomposition. But we can't give you an accurate um, avatar or description of what those wounds might, may have looked like um, at the moment they were inflicted. So as such, it's very difficult for anyone, uh, even a pathologist as experienced as Dr. Margolius was at the time, to give, uh, a, you know, a... a an exacting um, map of those of those wounds, both on the neck and on, on the defensive wounds, um, and and so because of that, there was no uh, um, concrete conclusion as to how they were inflicted, and and particularly not whether they were inflicted by a person of, who was left or right-handed. So. In, in terms of the evidence before Justice Hall, no, there isn't anything that says that it was more likely that the, these were inflicted by a, a person with a, a, holding a weapon in his left hand or his right hand. Um, and they couldn't even say um, in, in real precise um, terms um, for Jane's wound, for instance, because she'd been in the elements longer, um, how big that wound was when it was first inflicted because it had decomposed um, to such an extent. Brendan, in other cases, um, is this something that during the forensic process can be determined in cases where maybe the decomposition is not as great? Oh, handedness is certainly something that forensic pathologists can comment on um, because um, there's, there's elements, especially with blunt uh, sorry, sharp force, trauma, injuries, um, particularly like a face, face-to-face confrontation between a, a victim and an offender where a, a higher proportion, for instance, of those injuries will be on the, uh, um, I suppose, the opposite side to what the handedness is, if you can imagine kind of that mirror image of a person. Um, it certainly is something that forensic pathologists can discuss, um, but decomposition introduces a whole new um, complication with that because um, the areas that start to decompose first 
um, in in a in a body are areas where there are penetrating injuries and, and orifices and, and like your mouth and and, um, and your eyes and, and areas like that. Tim, I expect um, the witness will be cross-examined tomorrow and obviously Fridays is usually a half day, so is that all you're expecting tomorrow? Yeah, short day tomorrow again, that. We just go till uh, one o'clock. Um, so I'm not sure if we'll even... We might start the cross-examination of Mr Bagdonovicius tomorrow, but I doubt that we'd finish it because... Um, we're just going on uh, this, this week's history. Um, Mr. Jovic, um has uh, has taken his time um, in, in in grilling the uh, the Path West people, um, and uh, given Mr. Bagdonovich has been sort of quite intimately involved in the case for a long time, um, including with uh, with um, you know identifying fingernails for DNA analysis um, uh, and the uh, the Caracalla rape victims clothes uh, i'm sure he'll have um you'll have plenty of questions for him so uh so yeah so that'll take us up to the end of the week thank you well we'll look forward to chatting to you then and thanks for coming in today brendan if you have any questions for the podcast team or any of our guests then please send them to claremont podcast at wanews.com.au we'll be back tomorrow to wrap up week nine of claremont in conversation this podcast was produced by kate ryan and alicia preedy and recorded in the studios of seven west media Audio files were provided from the archives of The Seven Network and The West Australian. Sign up for daily emails and all the latest on the Claremont trial at thewest.com.au. Enjoying this podcast? If the story behind the headline matters to you, then you can count on thewest.com.au to deliver. For more on Claremont the trial, follow the live blog, watch the nightly news updates, and sign up for daily email updates at thewest.com.au. Subscribe now for just a dollar a day at thewest.com.au.